You are listening to the Necropolis Podcast, which is brought to you by Jason from Goatcraft and Shelly from HeatMeditations.com and Metal Legion Magazine. Welcome to Necropolis. I am Shelly of the uh, online blog Hate Meditations, where you can find armchair rhetoric on extreme metal. Um, today, uh, I've been very excited about this episode because we're going to talk about one of my all-time favorite death metal bands, uh, Immolation. Um, and the reason I am hosting and not Jason is because, well, Immolation are one of my all-time favorite death metal bands. But fear not, Jason is here as well. Uh, good evening, Jason. Howdy, howdy, from Texas. And we also have returning um, old-school death metal writer Tyler as well. Hi, Tyler. Hello. Hello. Um, so where to start with Immolation? Um, my take on them has always been that they were kind of screwed over in the early days they started out as rigor mortis not to be confused with the uh, the texan thrash band um in the late 80s and then they they changed their name to simulation they started adopting more of a, a death metal sound in line with a lot of the other bands around that era and then they released their their debut album dawn of possession back in 1991 and it's a solid it's a solid death metal album i wouldn't say it's sort of up there with with the greats of around that time i mean obviously we spent 10 hours talking about morbid angel the other week i wouldn't say that it sort of holds up to what morbid angel were doing in in 1991 but it's it's a solid death metal album but unlike a lot of their contemporaries they kind of they lost momentum after that because they were kicked off their label roadrunner because roadrunner had decided that death metal was no longer a financially viable product so they wanted to move on to alt metal or whatever and that meant that they never managed to sort of you know pick up on that momentum and sort of release anything like to sort of get them going and get their name out there in the way that like a suffocation were doing and it wasn't until 1996 that they managed to get their act together again and release here and after and whatever your views on immolation as a as a whole i think here and after belongs in any kind of top 20 and top 10 death metal releases of all time but in terms of immolation's career it probably landed a little bit too late they were kind of too late to the party by that point and people had moved on from death metal so that and that kind of that set them off on the wrong foot so they've always been like a an also ran of the genre but for my money the follow-up albums after here and after failures for gods close to world below and unholy cult i think they're all absolute classics as well but they go under-recognized because people kind of forget about Immolation um, compared to, you know, the other kind of household names. But I'll go more into detail of sort of the the arc of their career for now. But, you know, we'll start off by sort of getting some comments from you both first. So, Jason, what's your kind of take on, on the Immolation phenomenon? Oh, that's a good question, Shelley. Thank you for asking that. Um so I, like many other people, found Immolation back when I was 15, 16 years old, looking for all the great death metal that I can consume. And what really stood out initially with Immolation is the off-kilter riffing that they have. And um, I did want to kind of make a point that they're very unique in that aspect where they, they're they able to... Uh, uh, have aspects of polyphony and with the guitar riffing and also um it, it reminds me of how wagner changed classical music by 
implementing music that you wouldn't expect where you know back in even the romanticist period which wagner came from um they still wrote in sonata form so the sonata form you have your themes that recycle so it's very predictable music wagner threw all of that out of the window and uh he came with very exciting music where no one would know which turn you know turns the music would take and it was always a really great conclusion and uh, I think death metal really assimilated that as well. Um, just you know, riffs that came out of left field and really it's like very catchy stuff that kind of broadens our uh, understanding of uh, music and, you know, beyond the classical forms um, and emulation dial that, you know, that to a 10 or 11 with the unexpected riffing and very off kiltered nature of it. Um, and the greatest, and this is the point I kind of wanted to make, um, the the greatest like uh, aspect of them is that uniqueness uh, in the guitar riffing, where they're able to layer and layer such great themes and expand upon them. And the only thing that, the only band that kind of comes close to that in the off-kilter nature of the riffing is... Uh, mid-period gore guts with uh obscura from wisdom to hate i think that is the closest to emulation and they are very very different beasts these like the gore guts guys they're really inspired by shostakovich and all this i don't think the emulation guys were inspired at all by classical composers it was just an innate drive for them to create really it's complex but it's very digestible type of off-kilter melodies that they expand upon um so that's my my initial thoughts on uh, emulation, um, and we can go release by release if you guys want later, or just kind of just let the conversation evolve naturally. I do, I do have a take on that as well um, in relation to the off kilterness, but I'll just let um, Tyler sort of come back on that, and then and then we'll get into that. All right. Well, emulation was also one of my introductions to the death metal genre i absolutely loved dawn of possession when i first discovered death metal but over time i found myself gravitating more towards here and after and i became a immolation fan a diehard immolation fan very early on in my uh in my uh time of being a death metal uh listener and really enjoyed failures for gods really enjoyed Close to a world below really enjoyed unholy cult uh really enjoyed i shouldn't say really enjoyed i liked parts of harnessing ruin i thought it had promise but i thought that it also was attempting to imitate some modern trends in metal which actually uh interestingly enough came back up later in emulation's career i really liked shadows in the light when it first came out um i would say that over time my, what I realized about the uh, immolation discography is that uh, Dawn of Possession, for instance, kind of fell down in my esteem. It's interesting that you mentioned how it was an, it was a good death metal album, but it didn't compare to the greats of its time. Uh, I would agree. I think the first half of the album is immolation beginning to uh, accomplish what they did with their second album. The second half of the album sounds a little bit more like some updated uh, music from their demos, 
where it's kind of in that gray area between uh, thrash metal or speed metal and death metal. Um, but with here and after, what I find really interesting about Immolation and what they kind of tried to repeat in various ways on their uh, proceeding albums is that they would combine not just a sense of twisting and contorting sound that is almost not tonal into something that can be discerned as uh, music, but also they uh, they united that with a very uh, architected sense of uh, composition. So you got this really interesting vision of a world in which something is uh, wrong, something is awry, uh, there is some form of chaos seeping through the structure, and yet through this sort of chaos, this disorganization, you're given these brief glimpses of potential, of possibility, something that's almost like a primal sense of triumph. I feel like that really comes across on some of on a lot of the music on here and after especially uh i kind of have stopped listening to the later immolation albums uh as i've grown older i really feel sometimes like they lost some of that complex uh sense of composition that they had on here and after and also to a certain extent on failures for gods and kind of started to go more in the direction of what kind of wide sweeping emotional gestures can i make with my experimentation with tone and noise. Um, and they were some of those experiments were successes that had powerful moments, but I feel like their focus on that or their shift of their focus on that was um, at the loss of having some, of having that united to a more complex form of composition and much, much later in their career, I would say after shadows and the light uh, as kind of a, uh, um, kind as kind of foreshadowed by harnessing ruin they really started to imitate a lot of the trends like the very rhythmically focused trends that simple like simplistic um, rhythmic focus in modern metal and i think that as much as you say you know and i think you're right that they were too late to the party to be noticed i think they've had kind of a renaissance in more recent times in the metal scene you see them touring with really big name bands in the metal scene as co-headliners like with behemoth and nile but i don't think that it's a renaissance that old school fans of their material are going to be very appreciative of no i mean they got the uh the nuclear blast signing which um is kind of a, a kiss of death for legitimacy but it, it is kind of a, a steady paycheck and um you know part of me wants to say credit to them they they deserve like a bit of stability from it but yeah the the music has kind of fallen by the wayside and they kind of have to slot into that modern trend of the last 10 or 15 years and yeah it's sort of the very kind of homogenized behemoth um modern behemoth kind of sound where it is yeah very rhythmic there's less focus on the uh on the the weird sort of counterpoint dissonance that Vigna was experimenting with in the late 90s but um the take I wanted to give on that, the kind of like the arc that you've both kind of described there, I I think a big part of that comes down to the uh, to the drummers that they've had over the years as well. Um, I'll caveat this by saying I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of some of these surnames, so apologies in advance. But um, the drummer for 
dawn of possession through to here and after Craig uh, Somalski. Um, he by here and after he was doing it's almost kind of jazzy style where the rhythm has no kind of center and it's very hard to kind of keep count, especially if you're sort of a less experienced like death metal listener. The rhythms are really kind of weird and undulating and very kind of organically flowing. And then after that, they took on Alex Hernandez, who was the drummer for um, Close to World Below, Feliz for Gods, and um, Unholy Cult did that in the wrong order. But And he's another very interesting drummer because he almost sort of, he doesn't really play rhythm or backbeats. He plays like riffs on the drums that kind of really complement the riffs of the guitars, but they also kind of upset their momentum and they kind of get in Vigna's grill a lot and you kind of get this these interesting rhythmic framing devices that aren't necessarily just a metronomic tempo but they're kind of almost almost the second or third rhythm guitar kind of complement and then yeah by the time we get Harnessing Ruin they they have their current drummer Steve uh, Shalati who is a really competent like technically competent drummer but I don't want to hold him completely responsible for the decline in emulation sound because obviously that's not fair. But he came at a time when by the mid-2000s, the sort of technical bar in extreme metal was much higher than it was in the early 90s. Like, you know, most musicians out there had a certain sort of minimum standard of technical competence and really good drummers, they were becoming far more common. It was much less common to hear kind of a, a sloppy drum track on a you know, an album released after 2005, say. So he kind of came in and sort of, you know, he didn't really have an identity in the same way as the two drummers that preceded him did. And as a result, the emulation sound did get a bit more generic and kind of in line with a lot of other sort of bog standard death metal bands of the time. And I think Wigner kind of, yeah, he let his uh, sort of identity kind of fall by the wayside by not having a drummer that sort of, really challenged him to uh, to do something a bit interesting and a bit different. I, I can kind of see that. Um, the drumming on uh, all the early Immolation albums, very you can tell they're very schooled drummers, uh, very uh, well-versed in their trade, on their crafts. Um, but I, I, I see a very uh, watering down of just creativity. I mean, granted, you know, a bad Immolation album is a good album for most other bands um so uh i i just think you know they they reached their peak and i i think you know by the time they hit unholy cult they kind of already had like the emulation template where they had their distinctive style in the, in the later albums like um which we can get into um i did listen to acts of god um a couple of weeks ago, uh, knowing that we we're going to do this uh, episode, and I, I I don't actually have a favorable view at all of it. I know your your uh, review on HateMeditations.com was a uh, you know it it wasn't a, a completely negative review, but I, my opinion is they've actually devolved into like Gojira tier metal now. They still <laughs> have the uh, that template that they've had since Unholy Cult and Close to a World Below. I love how Gojira is its own tier in quality now. <laughs> um, yeah, so 
okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna shelve the discussion of the albums, say post Majesty and Decay for now. I do want to get into that, but I want to kind of front load the discussion with, you know, we'll go maybe through their albums chronologically, but um, yeah, sort of talking about the quality work first, and then and then we'll move on to kind of what went wrong. As I said, I think partially it was to do with the drumming, but that's not the whole story. But yeah, to come back to Tyler's point about Dawn of Possession, like I would agree that like the second half of the album, it really does kind of tail off and just becomes sort of a, a very kind of standard example of late 80s death metal of that time. But the first sort of handful of tracks on there, you do sort of hear the the immolation kind of identity begin to begin to take shape. Um, like, yeah, the first few tracks and then you get those left behind where they introduce um, this sort of very kind of gloomy, not quite doom metal, but um, very kind of creeping, lurking sound where it doesn't sound sort of aggressive or um, frantic. It's much more kind of menacing than that. And that would be like a common theme through to here and after as well, where some of it sounds so like, effortlessly creepy um in a way that yeah you didn't really get from a lot of death metal bands of that time um but i mean this has to be contrasted with the lyrics which was sometimes a little bit uh should we say juvenile is that a charitable word for them <laughs> no it's cringe <laughs> okay <laughs> I mean, I entirely agree with you. Uh, that's actually to be the number one problem with Immolation all through their career. Why I would class here and after as one of, like you said, top tw- 10 at the very least top 20. But that being said, I feel like the one thing that holds them back from being at the level of what would be like the greatest examples of classic death metal ever is that their concept was not as uh fertile for the imagination right it didn't have almost like that mythological component that the best death metal had it was purely vitriol against christianity which there's plenty of that and even like higher class so to speak death metal bands but it was usually like united to some sort of mythological symbolism whether that was satanic or whether that was a cult or whether that was of some kind of pagan religions you know or some kind of lovecraftian uh uh, horror uh, immolation was just purely vitriol against Christianity, and that's a concept that I don't think leaves a lot of room for artistic exploration. Well, I actually looked at their metal archives earlier today. I did my homework, and uh, and uh, on their metal archives, it shows like the part of the lyrics are like political and inner struggle is one of the themes, and I, I can see inner struggle with the song "Father You're Not a Father," but that's another discussion. I mean, Inner Struggle, I think, would definitely be a theme of their later albums. But yeah, their earlier albums, I definitely agree with Tyler in that, like, yeah, they lacked the world building aspect that a lot of death metal bands had. I mean, even if you take a day aside, like, Glenn Benton was so committed to that role and so, like, larger than life. And you compare that to Ross Dolan, who I think he's an excellent death metal vocalist, but he's, he's no Glenn Benton as far as, like, charisma and commitment to a part goes and also you know having met him a couple of times in person and seen a lot of interviews he's too he's too nice (laughs) for that but um definitely by the time that they released failures for gods and um that had sort of 
the cover art for that was kind of in between kind of comic book style and actually quite decent sort of fantasy art. But again, it felt a little bit too elaborate for the actual kind of themes on the album. Like musically, it's an absolutely impeccable album and it kind of showcases some of the best of like Bigner's um, guitar work um, ever. But yeah, again, lyrically, it's it's a little bit, um, a little bit kind of phoned in at times, and that's yeah, that seems to be a common theme throughout. I think. I think uh, "Close to a World Below" may be the most accessible good emulation album, just from the sheer production. It's very crisp. It's very modern sounding. Whereas I know, like uh, we were talking about, because of Roadrunner, uh, a lot of the emulation stuff was late to the party. Um, but even like I think uh, "Failures for Gods" was released in like 1999. But the production on it sounds like it's from like the late 80s, early 90s, and not like a more sound production or anything like that. It's very not not the best uh, production out there. Um, but when you get to Close to a World Below, I feel like that's the album that you can get someone that who's getting into death metal. It's like, hey, check out Immolation. Give them a really good Immolation album that has a good production that they're able to oh, yeah, the riffs are, you know, very texturally nice and all that and then then you can introduce the other albums so like i would start with close to a world below and probably uh unholy cult and failures for gods next after that yeah i mean i've, I've gone over this because yeah i would agree there there is a sort of a real kind of curve in terms of the the actual sound quality from for, between those two albums and some people i know that some of the reviews on metal archives say that failures for god suffers because the guitar sound is just too murky um to actually kind of do justice to uh to some of the riffs on there but for me i always thought it had a really that gave it a really creepy sort of dark like immersive atmosphere whereas close to world below um well, it's probably one of my favorite Immolation albums. It's it's more like it. It's more what's the word? Hot. It's kind of got a crisp, kind of very aggressive, sort of vibrant sound to it that um, kind of completely is sort of almost an antithesis to the the really murky kind of swirling atmosphere that was on here and after and failures for gods. Yeah, man, that murky atmosphere is really awesome. I mean, it's like when people complain about the gloomy reflections of our hidden sorrows by Cenotaph, like, oh, it sounds like it was recorded underwater. Yeah, dude, I want it to sound like it was recorded underwater. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, um, and this might be a segue into the later discography, is that, you know, Close to World Below had a really great production, that isn't murky is very accessible and so are their sellout albums they sound you know very similar to close to a world below but there's a great poverty and the creativity of those albums um like i was talking about you know acts of god there was uh, a lot of stuff on there that didn't really remind me as death metal more of like a alt rock and a punk type of gojira all that and not something that I would even really consider a hundred percent death metal. Well, even to do, even to take it to it back to its most basic kind of level, uh, Phase for Gods, Close to a Blow, and Unholy Cult, um, they were made up of some pretty lengthy tracks. Like Unholy Cult, the title track is 
uh, you know, it's nearly eight minutes long, which is quite unusual for death metal. And it's because, you know, Vigner wanted to work out this, this lengthy kind of narrative structure um, that kind of ran the whole course of the track. And again, close to world below the, the title track on that is, is pretty lengthy as well. And again, it's sort of, it takes its time unfolding and sort of delivering themes of chaos at the start that slowly like um, amalgamate as the, as the track goes on and then sort of Vigna delivers like the final theme. That's always this very creepy guitar refrain that kind of fades into the background. But then you take the, the later albums and you can see, you know, there's sort of 10, 11, 12 tracks on there and most of them are barely five minutes long. Not that that would be an indicator of quality in and of itself. It's indicative of Vigna trying to go for a more direct kind of, um, I want to say efficient, but maybe just more of a kind of radio friendly style. And, you know, that, that was there on Shadows in the Light as well, but he managed to kind of find the balance between retaining some of the the identity of his his earlier riffs with making the songs more direct on that album, which he seems to have lost uh, after that. And I, I think the longer you're talking about the longer narrative structures on a Unholy Cult, um, that that gave Vigna a lot of room to actually implement the polyphony and all that, which I, th- I think the longer songs they all reach this point where it's very phenomenal stuff, like. Like almost like a Bruckner symphony when you get to like the the coda of a movement where everything comes together and it's just this great final statement. And I, I see that on Unholy Cult and a few of those tracks where um it's very, you know, you get through the song, it's very entertaining and all that. You go through the motions and the journey that they're taking you on. Um, but then you reach the end, the the summation, uh the coda, so to speak. And it's a great aspect of polyphony that isn't really commonly heard in death metal. And um, the especially the later stuff does not have that. It might be aping that a little bit. It may like feign it. It's like, hey, we're still in Malaysia. We have the template. We have our style still. But it never truly reaches the gravitas of the original uh, long-winded narrative structure with the summation at the end of Unholy Cult. Um and I, I view that album you know, as I was listening to it today, and in my memory, it was like, well, spotty. There's a few really good, great songs, and then some other songs that, you know, just kind of not really memorable. But I was listening to it today, I was like, well, these are still freaking solid songs. Um, and so, I yeah, it's definitely a great album. And um, that in the, the 2000s for Death Metal, I think it came out in 2002. There wasn't much good stuff coming out back then. That must be like one of the best releases of that decade. I mean, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I I would roughly agree with that too. If Jason earlier, when you were talking about the production on Close to a World Below and its accessibility compared to prior albums, you were making a point about immolation. Um, starting on the road to where they are uh at currently uh with the with uh that album uh i say yes i totally agree <laughs> i'm not sure if that's actually what you were trying to say but i decided to be a little bit uh uh a little bit um uh i don't know uh aggressive i guess um yeah i th- see with um how do i want to put this so with even with close to a world below and unholy cult 
I feel like you, J Shelley, you mentioned how on later emulation albums, like on Acts of God, for instance, it's a collection of, you know, four and five minute songs. They don't have uh, the uh, lengthy title track that you saw on both Unholy Cult and Close to a World Below. Uh, what's interesting is that Here and After is a collection of four and five minute songs. I think the longest one on there is almost six minutes. Um, and uh, so you would, so you would, you know, of course ask what is the difference between some, an album like acts of God and uh, here and after. And I know you said that, you know, the length of the song does not necessarily indicate quality. Um, I think, but to me, something that unholy cult and close to a world below and shadows in the light and harnessing ruin can ha have in common with uh, acts of God that uh, here and after does not as much is that the, uh, I guess to put it very simply, the number of riffs decreases pretty dramatically on those albums, right? And that can be a positive thing, you know, especially when you're experimenting with something like tone and polyphony, you have a smaller number of riffs so that you can focus on embellishing the fewer themes that you have more. And I think that's arguably what was happening on albums like close to a world below and unholy cult and in some cases on some songs and in some particular riffs uh they accomplished that uh pretty impressively but i do think that the notion of focusing on like aesthetic on texture and on harmony was established on those albums is that at me saying that they are bad albums no i think they're very good albums i've enjoyed listening to them and i still enjoy listening to them time to time i just think there's an argument to be made that the decline perhaps had its seeds planted in that period yeah i mean there's no question that here and after is their densest album just for the amount of information that is thrown at you over a relatively short album as well it's not that long um and yeah vigna's really toying with um like not just a set of ideas, but how they work in tandem and how they develop and sort of contrast with each other. Um, and just like, yeah, the swirling distance, the counterpoint, um, adding to that kind of the three-dimensional approach to rhythm on there. But then you get like the, the closing number, Christ Cage, where I think that was probably the, the most kind of unholy cult close to world below E track on there, where it was like a sign of things to come. It was also my my favorite track on there, but I know that Jason, you mentioned a take on the intro to Christ Cage the other day that um, it made me laugh, but I was also like, "You fucker!" Oh yeah, yeah I apologize. My dog is going berserker right now, but uh, um, so yes, uh, Christ Cage. Even when I was a teenager and I heard that, it, it was just always cringe to me. The intro, I mean, this great song uh, after the intro is phenomenal. I always skip the intro. But uh, it it just painted this picture of like Lisa Simpson, um, just sitting or outside in the alleyway somewhere at nighttime, with light drizzly rain coming down, playing the saxophone, and it's like <laughs> totally vibing out, and like hair swaying in the drizzling rain, and it's just like it's not a very death metal aesthetic that I'm getting from this intro. And uh, yeah, but the song itself is great. It's just I always had to skip the intro to that. It's a great so album for me. I always loved, I always loved that intro because you don't really hear like a solitary little guitar refrain playing in the distance on a death metal album, like especially of that time. Like death metal albums were very 
short and to the point. And, Unless you know, to like have this two or three immolation albums after that. But yeah, yeah. But to have this weird sort of empty intro, I always, I always found it a bit creepy. But um, yeah, I think you've ruined it for me now. <laughs> <laughs> I got to make a meme of Lisa Simpson playing the saxophone in an immolation <laughs> shirt now. <laughs> That's that's honestly the vibe I got when I was a teenager, so it's nothing new to me. <laughs> um, so yes, um what else about emulation? So I actually have something I want to bring up is that this may not be a much talked about band because they're all about the music. Usually with a lot of like the bigger death metal bands, there's the greater than life personas that are associated with that. Like we talked about Morbid Angel Forever and we talked about the people themselves and morbid angel and all kinds of you know different quote-unquote type of people kooky weirdos whatever but emulation it's just like yeah they're just there just playing death metal it's like we don't really talk about them as people as much like greater than life just more of like really phenomenal musicians and i i I think that's one of the reasons why they may not be talked about as much in a social aspect because they are pretty much down to earth types of dudes. It's not uh, a band where you have like a David Vincent running around. It's like, I'm country this week. No, I'm, I'm Rob zombie this other week and nothing like that. You have, you know, just down to earth death metal dudes. And I think that that is one of the reasons why they aren't probably talked as much about. Yeah, and it almost makes me feel bad when I want to criticize what they're doing because as people, they seem to be just too nice, which, as you said, is it's an exception in, in death metal. And uh, yeah, they just seem to be totally focused on doing what they're doing, living their lives and kind of just enjoying it. Um, and yeah, they don't sort of play up to anything, which you could, you, you know, it sounds like that would be words of praise saying like, well, yeah, there's there's no bullshit with them, so and you don't get all of the psychodrama that you get with other bands. Um, and you know, they just focus on their craft and you know, for a long time they were very, very good at that. But also there is a sense in which it kind of makes it feel like it's all pretend. Like, you know, we take the piss out of a Glenn Benton or a David Vincent, but for a time they they really believed in what they were doing and they kind of walked the walk and talked the talk as well. Whereas of immolation, it seems to be more of a I don't want to say a hobby because that seems a bit too uh, dismissive, but it's definitely, it's something that they can separate themselves from, if that makes sense. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to mention is like uh, the guitarist's mom doesn't scold the the vocalist, like what happened to Morbid Angel. And it's just like you know, all these aspects that come out, you know, Glenn Benton is a great example of a greater in life and type of person out there. Um, but yeah, emulation. When you think about the pe- the musicians, like yeah, they're just musicians. They're really good ones. They're not, you know, they're not Lord Byron's or anything like that out there. Especially not in the lyrics. But uh, <laughs> um, they're they're not these greater in life aspects that people tend to be drawn in. It's a very epiphenomenal aspect, a byproduct to be, and you know, in a, a band to have, you know, like a pro wrestler type of mentality where. You, you have this person of this greater in life and you're trash talking bands that you think are false or wrestlers that you think are wimpy and things of that nature. You get none of that from emulation. You just have some, you know, down to earth guys and they just want to blast some fucking death metal. And I think it's really cool. 
But yeah, just like on the social aspect, there isn't really much to talk about there. I was going to say the exact same thing as uh, the both of you. I would when my very first death metal concert was Immolation supporting uh, Nile, actually. Um, and it was just before they released Majesty and Decay. And I met um, the one I particularly remember reading meeting is uh, Ross Dolan. Uh, but I've also read plenty of their interviews and seen them in videos and spoken with people who have had extensive interaction with them. And they seem like incredibly nice guys. They seem like very hardworking, nice gentlemen. And so the fact that most of this episode has taken a sort of a critical uh, approach to their discography was making me feel slightly guilty because of how nice of guys they are. <laughs> Well, they're sort of like they're an example of like blue collar death metal. Like they've always, until very recently, they've always had to keep up a job alongside it. Um, but they've never sort of made a made a show of who they really are as people. They haven't kind of played a character on stage or anything. They're just kind of honest, like craftsmen. I think uh, Vigna's a music teacher, and Dolan uh, used to drive a truck around. Um, you know, the kind of jobs that they could get that would allow them to go on tour for months at a time. Um, and yeah, it, it, they're a bit of a, a unicorn in that respect in that, um, yeah, they don't, they cut through all of that bullshit. But yeah, it does It does mean that we kind of, um, you're only really left with the music to focus on, which I guess, you know, when you say it like that is, is a good thing um, to talk about. But yeah, at the same time, it sort of, it doesn't make for, uh like the poetry or the sort of you know the compelling tragedy that we would find in you know a lot of death metal um from their time or you know the black metal scene as well uh especially yeah. from the black metal scene that's for sure yeah. sorry yeah. jason yeah I, I completely agree with that um and i i honestly like uh when i think about immolation it's primarily 100% about the music and I know it's kind of beating a dead horse now but and I don't know if that's 100% good thing because even during the romanticist period there were composers flinging shit at each other and it was very entertaining stuff it always made the news it's like Brahms versus Wagner that stuff is still lingering today where you know all everything that they the insults that they threw at each other is still is like in the public consciousness of classical music and then you listen to the music and say, oh, these guys were masters. Oh, you know, it's debatable about Brahms, a great composer, but supposedly his symphony is, is essentially a chamber music just orchestrated. But uh, um, I, I kind of miss that aspect of the the early 90s death metal scene where it was like, let's scare away all the wimps. Let's have greater in life personas and let's throw in all this imagery that's really scary and all that and you can see emulation wasn't a part of that i know they're a part of the tape trading scene for a long time and when they did you know come out eventually uh they're well respected but when it comes to that aspect of scaring away the jocks like the metallica jocks that were kind of ruining death metal um by throwing in all the satanic imagery blah 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 blah, blah and um I, I just feel like emulation wasn't really a part of that. They they had their own thing going on, which comes on their lyrics, especially. Um, and it wasn't really part of that uh, 
early death metal zeitgeist that was going around. They just kind of did what they wanted to do um, by themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is kind of made up for by the fact that they had a run of not just consistent albums, but like what I would class as seminal death metal albums from, you know, half of Dawn of Possession all the way through to Unholy Cult. And that that is quite rare amongst comparable death metal bands of their generation. Um, as we discussed in the Morbid Angel episode, there's a lot of death metal bands out there that can lay a claim to, you know, making at least one or two classic albums that stand up to the best that Morbid Angel offered. But I would say Immolation, you know, four or five, four and a half, like absolutely classic death metal albums kind of makes up for the fact that, you know, they are just average dudes going about their business. But I think by the time they released Unholy Cult, um, it was a, both a continuation and an evolution of what they were doing on Close to World Below. And then after that, I mean, as I said, I kind of I have the drummer thesis on on Immolation, and they took on a new drummer after that, and they released Harnessing Ruin. And by that point, Harnessing Ruin isn't a bad album by any stretch. It has some quality work on there, but as Tyler alluded to in the intro, like it does kind of fall in line with a lot of trends of sort of mid two thousands, like popular metal. Um, it th- again, the tracks are shorter. Not that that's an indication in and of itself, but. The riffs are slightly more simplistic. The grooves are a little bit easier to kind of get your your head around. Um, Vigna doesn't kind of work the songs into this sort of frenzied teleological kind of finale-esque thing. They're more just sort of a collection of riffs that go really well together. And it kind of feels like they were releasing an album because that's what you had to do. And they're competent enough and creative enough to release a quality album. But it, it was very much sort of color by numbers and again, to take the sort of surrounding scenery of that album, the the cover for Harnessing Ruin is very kind of tacky digital art, like it looks like the cover of a, a cheap video game, as far as I'm concerned. And you compare that to the cover of uh, Here and After, and there's just, there's just no comparison. And it was kind of a sign that, for me, they were just doing it for the sake of kind of still, you know, sustaining themselves, still existing as a band. I haven't that listened was- to Harnessing Ruin since it came out that's that's the type of impression that loves me it was like i i was not impressed when i heard it and i i don't remember anything about it now it's been so long other than i have like this like archetype of what it represents <laughs> and and i don't want to revisit that archetype so um yeah i have not listened to harnessing ruins since it came out uh shadows and light which we kind of touched on a little bit did have some really great fireworks in there but it's like a Fourth of July like party where you go there. I'm sorry, Shelly, you're not in America. You don't celebrate that. But on the Fourth of July, people gather together. You know, have a barbecue and shoot off fireworks and all that. It's I, I know, Jason. I've heard of the Fourth of July. <laughs> it's, it's, it's essentially an album where it's a Fourth of July. All the food fucking sucks, but there's really pretty fireworks. So that's the kind of impression I get from uh, Shadows in the Light. It's funny that you should mention the cover on Harnessing Ruin because that was a 
common trend among some of the not so quality metal bands of the time is to uh, really get amped up about CGI generated cover art because it was like some of the latest in technology for the time, you know, so it was cool and forward thinking to have like a CGI computer. Well, it's redundant to say computer generated, but a CGI like, you know, cover album cover. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it really was in a kind of, I think, indicative of immolation's desire to finally get the recognition, recognition that they just, if they did feel this way, they justifiably felt they deserved throughout their whole career, you know? Yeah, um, I definitely agree with that. And they also, they changed their logo as well from like the, the old school flame font to a much more like just straight straightforward kind of just immolation very clear font which again was a trend at the time people were moving away from the illegible death metal logos right yeah they did just the kind of like uh you know like block letter font of some variety um so yeah i to suddenly shift gears a little bit uh, if you don't mind me throwing in a different topic in there, but I also kind of wanted to touch on something that wasn't necessarily negative. Um, as I uh, kept, you know, like later on in my listening to, in my life, listening to Immolation, I was struck by the fact that as unique as Bob Vigna's approach to tonality is, which you can definitely hear um, really come to the fore on here and after. Uh, talking about that album in particular, it's interesting how uh, similar it is in good ways to uh, other New York death metal albums of the time from Suffocation to even Incantation and uh, Morpheus uh, Descends. Um, and it also really made me realize why exactly people would make jokes about the shun bands from the New York area era area, you know, immolation, suffocation, incantation. Uh, it's not just that they have similar names. I feel like they all have also have a somewhat similar approach. Well, that, that departure was really in a uh, failures for gods where they dropped the, their uh, regional type of sound. I, I believe they, they actually dropped the regional sound for their own voice with failures for gods. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, the, there's a unique aspect to each of the Tampa bands, but there was definitely like a Tampa sound. I always, I always hold up like Massacre as like typifying the like old school Tampa kind of sound. And obviously Scott Burns had a big hand in kind of um homogenizing that as well and i know i've watched old interviews of uh rob vigner back in the day kind of being very clear that he wanted to he didn't want to go down uh to tampa to record ever because he you know he wanted to sound different and i know that aside from cannibal corpse a lot of the new york bands uh felt like that as well and yeah it did it did make it distinct um but i've never really aside from sort of um the the focus on kind of rhythmic complexity and this very sort of percussive you know um foregrounding the uh, percussion i've never thought of like suffocation and immolation being overly similar definitely morpheus descends and suffocation they definitely have like a common lineage but um and equally like incantation they have a similar kind of the immersive sort of atmospheric aspects that immolation were kind of toying with as well but 
John McKenty's kind of style is is very distinct. It's almost as distinct as Vigna's to some extent, and you can definitely tell them apart even by sort of even by the mid nineties. Yeah, for sure. I and there's obviously differences. I mean, I for one would rate incantation higher than I do immolation, but that's for a different uh, you know different conversation. Um, but I think that the similarities that I began to notice is that. Like if you compare something like suffocations, uh, I feel like the similarities could be across all suffocations class discography. But if you're talking about something like Pierce from Within or Incantations uh, onward to Golgotha, there is a forgive my uh, like really amateur like uh, like verbiage here, like very windy sound of riffing. Riffing it almost sounds like uh, something that's like twisting like bent wire. Um, you know, it also definitely has like a rhythmic aspect to it that's almost pummeling. Um, but it's uh, it, it almost sounds like something is wandering through like a very complicated maze. I mean, yeah, you you apologize for that, but I actually completely understand what you mean. Um, but equally, I, I would say Pierce with Pierce from Within is kind of like the the odd one out in Suffocation's discography because it is the closest, like close closest to you know their contemporaries in terms of incantation and emulation the other albums that suffocation put out around that time were very much more you know focused on like the hardcore or thrash kind of lineage that they they're famous for now whereas pierce from within i would argue is sort of the most death metal album that suffocation put out from that time if that makes sense no i see where you're coming from yeah because there's definitely a lot more like uh like uh thrash metal derived or hardcore derived riffs on like effigy of the forgotten for instance or on the demo preceding it especially yeah definitely definitely um i'm gonna move on unless you have any comments on suffocation jason honestly uh, suffocation i was totally into them when I was a teenager and a young adult, I, got, I actually saw that when they reformed and went on tour, I, I saw that show when they played in San Antonio. But as a guy in his 30s now, um, I really don't have any desire ever to listen to Suffocation again. I understand the greatness of the early albums, but when it comes to what I actually want to consume now, it, it is not Suffocation. So, um I, I don't really draw like a correlation from suffocation to emulation. Uh, Morpheus descends, yes, like you said, with suffocation, I can make that connection. And like you said, with uh, incantation, the kind of vibe and the world building, I can definitely see that being a correlation to emulation. Um, and just to go through all of those Asians, which I did without mispronouncing anything as a feat to behold, because I've had quite a few beers. And uh, but anyway, um, I, I feel that uh, getting into uh, older life where I want to like listen to suffocation. You hear the beginning roots of like brutal death metal, and that stuff is just like jock mentality. That's what death metal was against was a jock mentality. And you listen to all these brutal death metal bands. It's all jock. They wear like basketball jerseys and all that. It's like that's how jock they are. Um, and I mean, I listen to, yeah. Th- Go ahead. I was going to say, this is the thing about suffocation. So I, I really rate their, like, you know, their classic albums in the same way that I rate, you know, th- their contemporaries. But I could still do that and acknowledge that, yeah, they are probably responsible for influencing, like, the worst offshoot of death metal from around that time. Like, yeah, the the slam, 
and the uh, brutal death metal subgenres where and I really do despise it because you know by sort of the mid to late 2000s when I was going to a lot of gigs you would have to sit through any all day festival any kind of band where there was lots of support bands there would be like five or six of them and they all sound the fucking same but yeah yeah I can kind of acknowledge that yeah suffocation were responsible for that but they are miles better than you know 99% of the bands that they they influenced um in that regard I feel like um, Deeds of Flesh is better in Suffocation just from like early deeds because there's they, they take the, the brutal aspect and they don't make it dumbed down uh really a idiotic type of uh brocore slam or anything like that. They 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 mm-hmm. do it more like a a very long-winded form, and that's what I really appreciate about deeds. I would rather go to a Deeds of Flesh album than I would uh, a Suffocation. So what I'm getting from this is we'll do a spotlight on Incantation at some point, but definitely not Suffocation, or at least you won't be involved in it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I could say some stuff about Suffocation. I mean, really, like there really isn't much to talk about with Suffocation. They, they had their initial spurt of creativity, they released some good albums, and they broke up, and they reformed and released a lot of shitty albums. So... There is that. I mean, we could talk There's about it. Episode. It may not be an entertaining conversation, but um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, to bring it back to uh, Immolation, um, I was sort of tailing off after Harnessing Ruin. We have mentioned Shadows in the Light, but in between those two albums, they released a little EP um, called uh, Hope and Horror. And the reason I'm highlighting that, was it called Hope and Horror? Yes. Um the reason I'm highlighting this EP is because it's kind of like a, a weird odd one out in that it has um, one of their only instrumental tracks on there where Wigner really kind of flexes his the last of his muscles in terms of the, the sort of compositional tools that we were talking about. And it's kind of, it's weird that that was the EP and Shadow and Shadows in the Light was the album because I feel like it should have been the other way around. But that was like the last gasp of sort of the the quality immolation that, um that we kind of know and love um and then yeah there were there were kind of aspects of it on shadows in the light but as we discussed it's sort of like um well yeah jason you described it as fireworks it, it is that because yeah there's some there's some quality work on there but at the same time it doesn't really hold up in the same way as like the the preceding albums do and some of it feels a little bit disposable and a little bit phoned in but it's definitely like a step up from harnessing ruin in my book I think it's a step up from Harnessing Room. And my problem with the Hope and Horror EP is that there is a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot. There, it, it, it has the problem of flashy solos uh, that, it, that have very little like dynamic tonal motion. It, that, so there's like not real there's a lot of times where there's like a, a flashy guitar solo happening that really isn't doing much other than just being flashy which really goes back to jason's comment about the fireworks yeah i, I yeah i see what i see where you're coming from with that is um yeah there's kind of um yeah elements of kind of the empty showmanship whereas previously although there were plenty of like amazing solos on the classic emulation albums they always kind of added something or they weaved back into uh, the narrative again i'm thinking of the title track on unholy cult where you, you do get this as the song builds and kind of the drama builds um 
to this sort of breaking point. And then you get the solo where it picks up into a blast beat again, but then he sort of breaks back into the main theme. And the solo is kind of twisting and turning and interacting with the uh, development of the song. Whereas, yeah, later on, and then you, yeah, we see that on Hope and Horror, but we see it even more on later albums where it's sort of like, this is where a solo needs to happen. So I'll play a solo rather than sort of working it into the development of the whole piece. Right. It's uh, interesting that Jason mentioned earlier. I, I would like to maybe hear his, his opinion on this too, about how uh, late period immolation uh, sounds like Gojira because have either of you two ever noticed that a lot of the time in metal, especially when uh, something is called progressive, it shot a shocking amount amount of times. What's being called progressive really kind of sounds like uh, alternative alternative rock or mainstream rock of some variety in a different dress and immolation with their experimentation even on like unholy cult and close to a world below part of their experimentation wasn't just with dissonance but with bending tones in unconventional ways and then showing how they could bend those tones so far that they went through contorted through dissonance back into consonants and thus took advantage of like a more melodic consonants than you heard maybe in a lot of other death metal and so you would have like these kind of very emotionally impactful melodic moments and perhaps that that tendency kind of since it maybe became a focus of people who were complimenting them for the wrong reasons got into their minds as okay so the key to our success is writing consonant melodies and like i was listening to acts of god for instance and i noticed that they kind of took like that sense of melody and made it a focus and by extension you get the effect that it kind of just sounds like uh sort of like um you know uh sort of like a rhythmic rhythmic hook catchy melody kind of approach uh same thing even with their lyrical subject matter talking about inner struggle for instance you know mm-hmm. immolation not focusing on the satanic which could be seen as juvenile by some people from mainstream audiences and not having that world building aspect could almost be seen by some people probably as more mature you know they're not playing around with all that childish satanic stuff oh that's so, we were talking about like death like mid and later period death is all about his own inner struggle and all that and i hate that it's incoherent babble um but getting so, back to uh what you're trying to say with uh you know like when people pretty much hang up the towel and you know, just focus on their own personal lives and not a grander narrative that they and it's, when it comes to like metal bands um they do kind of dumb down their music to such an extent where it is a form of rock music or hard rock with metalized texture and uh on acts they of always god, pitch it to you like it's intelligent sorry go on go on on acts of god uh there's a song called noose of thorns and that is 100 gojira and if we can agree here that gojira is not metal um, then we have a good foundation to build, you know, this conversation, which I think we can all agree that it's not metal, metal. Um, it might As I said, I don't really know much about Gojira. Um, I'm not a child, so I don't think it's aimed at me. But <laughs> oh, whoa, um, whoa, shots fired! All right. <laughs> um, have you just this? This is a, oh, sorry, Jason. Carry on. It's like the rot sets in, and 
uh, people lower their guards and when it comes to like, you know, seasoned death metal musicians and they start aping, you know, melodies that essentially are not metal, they're alt rock or whatever, and they metalize them. And it's just like, why am I even listening to this? This isn't metal. And I, I heard that on Acts of God. And I did talk to a writer from a big magazine. And he said he really loved that album, Acts of Gods, or liked it a lot. Um, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but uh, um, he also admitted to liking Gojira. So I'm like, oh, that's why you like it. It's like you're listening to hard rock, essentially being metalized, and you like the the hard rock metalized songs. So um, that's well, what I want to. I want to go back to Tyler's point because Gojira. Uh, they often get held up as progressive metal and the likes of, you know, Mastodon as well. And it reminded me, um, have you guys ever read a book called Mean Deviation by Jeff Wagner on progressive metal? No, nope. sir. Um, basically, he, he does a very compre comprehensive history of, like, progressive metal from, you know, the early days of, like, Black Sabbath um, on, like, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, like, exploring progressive stuff. And he goes all the way through basically going through every subgenre of metal and tries to analyze it's like progressive strains. But the thing that he keeps coming back to and like the thesis of the book, it very much hits on Tyler's point in that he keeps trying to dismiss bands like Immolation or Morbid Angel because they are superficially brutal or samey. But if you don't dig beneath the layers and really sort of do a proper analysis of the kind of like compositional tools that uh, a Vigner or a Trey were using um, and the, the sort of weird kind of narratives that they were trying to eke out, you would maybe dismiss them as that. And the stuff that is superficially progressive, I, they work in kind of elements of 70s psychedelia. They, they kind of, you know, they have an organ in there. They do odd time signatures or whatever, or some stuff. I'm not even sure why it gets labeled progressive, but, um, and they sort of get held up as like the shining lights of mature metal. And my ultimate, bugbear with this i'm going to bring it back to emulation eventually but i do have an axe to grind here is fucking enslaved and anything they wrote after about 1996 where otherwise intelligent music fans seem to think that anything that they've done after that is is somehow like above the curve and they are like you know at the very forefront of psychedelic extreme progressive viking black metal and whatever and for me it's always like it's an absolute fucking mess what they're doing. It sounds like it was recorded in the biblical. They just shove random elements of like, you know, yes albums together with like a random death metal riff and then some hammed up thrash riff and a bit of Viking crooning and stuff. And it really fucking grates on me that they get held up as, you know, the, the next kind of possibility for, for metal or whatever. And yeah, add to that bands like Gojira, Mastodon, I mean, Opeth, although that reference is probably a bit dated now, but yeah, the whole narrative of what progressive metal is in scare quotes is is a bit is a bit backwards in metal sometimes, and it really does fucking grate on me at times. I'm glad that you agree. So I guess my question <laughs> for you, uh, Shelley, is that do you think that with um, Bob, uh, what was it, with uh, Vigna focusing on a sort of unconventional approach to melody? that perhaps part of the explanation for the decline in Immolation's quality is that they fell victim to that tendency of bands without much substance to try to 
gained some notoriety by labeling their insubstantial music as progressive. Yes. Um, I think what happened is they kind of, they bought into their own mythology or they were encouraged to by nuclear blast and various magazines and whoever else had their ear is that like, you know, we, we, we will discuss their influence eventually, but a lot of younger bands that, you know, probably reference simulation as, as a formative influence for them. Um, they probably kind of talked about some of the more superficial elements of Vigna's style. And then by that point, if you start getting praised for the things that are more superficial about what you do, you might kind of forget how you kind of went about, you know, composing a piece of music in the first place and think, well, I might as well, you know, focus on this, this other stuff and add to that the bands that you influenced have started putting out material that you're listening to as well. And you kind of start to get influenced by the younger generation. Not that that's a bad thing in and of itself, but when what the younger generation is doing is stuff like Gojira or whatever, um, then yeah, it's bound to rub off on you in a negative way. And you start to have this feedback loop of kind of being rewarded for sort of aping what your imitators are doing, even though your imitators were, you know, doing something inferior to you because they didn't, they didn't quite understand the kind of real mechanics of what was going on, or they weren't capable of producing something similar. Yeah, let's do some, let's slam on some dissonant open chords and do some uh, string bends and pitch, uh, pit, you know, uh, pinch harmonics. And uh, that, uh, that's that's how you write, like, uh, that's how you write Vigna riffs, right? Yeah, it's a similar process for, like, say, Gorgots Obscura. That's a really dense, complicated like piece of death metal but people took very superficial elements from that oh you just you do like percussive guitar playing and you do slam some complicated time signatures together and some distant solos or whatever and then you have a, a dillinger escape plan or whatever that you know aesthetically apes albums like obscura but doesn't have any of the kind of underlying complexity or the weird world building aspects that um gorgots were attempting at the time that's another example but i mean the watershed moment for immolation was as i mentioned earlier they signed to nuclear blast and released majesty and decay which for me it it was a real disappointment when it came out because i did expect big things from it probably a bit misguided in doing that but it was a the first time they started sounding like behemoth um it sounded like it came off a production line it was very very much sort of um artificial and very um homogenized kind of sound they were going for like the brutal um brutal sounding riffs and really percussive kind of songs there wasn't any of the kind of subtlety um and sort of harmonic interplay that uh, Vigna used to do it was all just throw some brutal sounding riffs together and then sort of tie it up in a neat little bow for a finale at the end. Not saying it was a complete dud because there are some moments on there that I still rate, but that was when Immolation took nosedive and they never really recovered from that in my book. And that's when they became sort of just, just another band, just another sort of part of extreme metal as sort of the modern landscape of it anyway. I think it's a success, which makes, you know, a lot of musicians kind of get into that just creating like a template of what they represent and just kind of working within a template. I, I've had the same experience where, you know, I had uh, three albums where I expanded a lot upon my style and uh, worked a lot on it. And 
by the fourth album, I didn't know where to take it. So what I did was I dumbed everything down, made it very intuitive. And I just wanted to create like a, the early days representation of what I was doing. And then by the fifth album, it's like there was expected forms that I had to play in. And I did that. And so um, I, I do feel like I succeeded in some aspects with the last two albums. But um, there there is like a like it didn't feel like a straight upward growth of what the first three albums did. And I think a lot of musicians do fall into that kind of type of mentality where they, they do reach a level of success and it's like, well, do you keep doing the same thing? And if you are going to do the same thing, it's like, do you keep repacking, repackaging it over and over or some other uh, uh, rendition of that? Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's you know it's a double-edged sword where if you want to experiment a lot, you may lose your fan base that you've built up. But then again, it's like, how are you gonna feel after you just ape yourself essentially um with uh mm. just creating like a template and what you work in? So that's what I kind of feel emulation's fall falling into, where it's just like a a template where they're aping their former selves and just you know pleasing what's expected of them. So Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. I don't know how familiar you guys are with like the the post Majesty and Decay albums. I know you were giving Acts of God a listen to earlier on, but um, I'll, well, also let me start by saying, I know I flew off the handle about Enslaved, but again, similar to Immolation, every time you watch an interview with these guys and you meet them, they are really nice guys, which kind of makes it harder to uh, come down on them so hard, but. The uh, the way the sycophants and fans sometimes act, it does make me angry. But apologies if um, if that was a little bit aggressive. But to go back to immolation, um, Kingdom of Conspiracy again was it, it kind of just like built on the Majesty and Decay formula, but in a really really kind of dumbed down way. And that really was the phoning in album. But the interesting flashpoint for me was when they released Atonement and. Again, this might seem a bit of an inane observation, but Atonement was the album where they went back to using their original Flame font logo. And it was released in 2017, and this was kind of at the height of the old-school death metal craze where, you know, Blood Incantation and Tomb Mold um, were at the height of their powers, and everyone was suddenly doing the old-school death metal thing. So it felt like Immolation were like, hey, we're an old-school death metal band, didn't you know? And... They also on the album itself tried to introduce the um the softer dynamics that kind of defined earlier extreme metal where the production was a little bit softer, the guitar tone maybe had a little bit more space in the album and everything wasn't sort of compressed to fuck. And the album itself, again, it sort of falls in line with sort of post-2010 immolation, but it was interesting that they tried to uh adapt their aesthetic to the trend. And again, I don't want to come down too hard on you know ross dolan and rob Vigner for it but because they were signed to nuclear blast at the time so they you know they were probably getting a lot of pressure off the label to do a certain thing but at the same time it, it did feel like a little bit of a cynical move in my book well they did uh have toyota sponsor them <laughs> um, well that was a few years before yeah with the um the ep they did yeah silent uh, well, that was it, yeah. Uh, Providence, that was the EP, yeah. Yeah, I, I would imagine that went to their heads a little bit. Um, 
I mean, I don't want to say that in derogatory sense. I mean, it's a lot to consider um, when, it, you know, you're you're reaching such a level of commercial success where a, a vehicle manufacturer wants to sponsor you. Um, I imagine it went to a lot of, because a lot of old school metal bands were were part of that, weren't they? And uh, <laughs> it's, it's bizarre that a car make was uh, investing in, uh, like, all of these old school bands, but um, that was... <laughs> That was what happened. Yeah, I would yeah, imagine that, uh, that would have been uh, something to really consider. You know, um, when it comes to, you know, just being very innovative, which emulation very much was, like, it's hard to categorize. It was like the closest thing I can get to that sounds like emulation is like mid period Gorguts with Obscura. And that still sounds worlds differently than emulation. So, early emulation like the first five albums had you know such a unique kind of character that you know trying to see that be thrust forward into the future with subsequent albums after that um it's you know part of it is you know compromise and reaching success and all that but like you were saying it's like these guys are just normal dudes (laughs) On a, on a certain level and it's hard to really like really criticize them in you know a, a sheer negative way just because they are such you know down-to-earth dudes but it's like when i'm when i'm listening to the newer emulation albums is it there's nothing there that's really speaking on like a death metal level like a really great death metal level other than like pandering and um, that's the kind of you know vibe I get from later emulation. Um, if you guys want to jump in, I think the similarity between Gorguts, mid period Gorguts, and emulation on a deeper level is a is a sort of honest representation of uh, the chaotic aspects of reality using dissonance and i think that what separates them uh is or at least one of the things that separates them um is that immolation includes a lot more violence in that vision as well uh, um yeah a lot more violence i would say as well as a certain sort of existential dread in that it's got a lot more uh rhythmically driving aspects to it in some ways than uh for like an album as for instance as obscura does um which is why one of the reasons why i actually would uh rate immolation a little higher than gorgoth i I listen to immolation a little more often than i do listen to uh, obscura um and uh i think that was honestly i feel like through this whole conversation that's been probably the single the singular point of praise for immolation is their utilization of unconventional uh tonality um that's like that was what set them apart i i really think that's kind of what similar what what the similarities with gorguts are like i said on a deeper level if, if you're looking at what their art does it's an attempt to look at the chaotic aspects of reality and not ignore them or try to explain them in a way that's pleasing to the individual but also through um, representing those chaotic aspects of reality also kind of show you a vision where you can embrace them, adopt them into your worldview, and through that, 
come to some better understanding of reality that you're more adapted to. And uh, I really think that the violence and immolation kind of uh, lends itself to that. It gives it somewhat more of a powerful feel. I would say immolation is more organized, though, than Gorguts. Yep. Yeah, that's that. I, I think that's a that's also a. Yeah, I would agree. I almost want think feel like that might be a better way of putting what I was saying than how I put it. Is that I mean, there's a yeah for me like Gorgos uh, Obscura, the album kind of it transcends Gorgos the band. It's one of those albums that stands so weird even in Gorgos discography. Like I know they developed some of those ideas on from Wisdom to Hate. But for me, Gorgos um, Obscura was like the the apex of what they were trying to do. And when I think I'm saying that because when I think of, you know, their first two albums considered dead and the erosion of sanity, I am more likely to compare them to suffocation than I am to immolation. I feel like early Gorgots sounds more like suffocation if they were forced to listen to like bark for like five hours a day or something. And then, you know, that the erosion of sanity would be the outcome from that. And then, Obscura is almost like a complete curveball. Like, yeah, it does bear similarities to uh, earlier Gorguts, but it's also, it's just a complete question mark for death metal as a whole. And yeah, it does stand up to comparison with with albums like Here and After, um, just because they are so complex that you can just keep returning to them and finding something new. And even if you look at like the masterminds behind them, like LeMay, He's like a, a music academic. He's he's been you know formally trained in, uh, I think he's been formally trained in classical music. Like he's sort of like almost like a musical elitist. Whereas Rob Wigner is he's a school teacher and he's a highly accomplished musician, but he's like the the blue collar version. And I'm not saying that to say one of them is superior to the other, but they come of it come at it from quite different angles. Like Luke LeMay is is he's more of like a weird sort of sage philosopher that really tries to come at things from a left field point of view. Whereas Wigner, he goes at it down the barrel, down the middle, but he ends up in a really, really weird place. Um, their starting points are just different, but they kind of end up in a very, very similar place. And I think the reason we're able to have this discussion about two very distinctive bands superficially and sort of talk about their similarities. I keep going back to an episode we did a little while ago um, with, I think it was the guy from Goblin, Sam Biles, where he talked about old like death metal bands and how distinct they all were. You could talk about an autopsy and you could talk about an atheist and you could talk about a massacre and dismember. And they were all wildly distinct from each other, but they all kind of bought into the same ethos and the same philosophy. And I think that's, the problem with modern immolation and it's probably the problem with a lot of other old death metal bands that are still going now is they they have lost that identity um whether it be through label pressure fan pressure or just you know running out of ideas they've they've lost that thing that made them them that kind of hunger that kind of made them stamp their own mark on on the genre and the norms that they wanted to kind of bend and break and i think that's ultimately what happened to uh to immolation and it did happen to Gorguts as well but i could probably talk for a whole nother episode on the Gorguts thing but yeah th those are the sort of thoughts i have about that I, the scene has uh, gotten so large and there are so many people who are uh making death metal music now because the bar for entry is uh com competently reproduce the aesthetic that if you make something truly 
distinctive like you like uh, death metal bands did in the early days of the genre there's a very good chance it's not going to be noticed over the 50,000 other death metal bands that are just uh playing you know one of the classic death metal bands aesthetic over again or some sort of modern trend that's a, the flavor of the month for this year or what have you and i think that's kind of at least part of what motivates those old school bands to uh go in a direction where they lose their identity is that, that they don't really know what else to do. You know, they're not going to, they're not going to get any, gain any recognition for putting the effort into making something distinctive. So they try some other method of getting some form of recognition for what they're doing. It's interesting. Cause I completely agree with you. And what's interesting here is like, uh, as part of like the reviews that I sift through for hate meditations, like I come across five bands a week that sound like Entombed, five bands a week that sound like Incantation. I never come across a band and think, "Wow, this sounds really like Here and After." Like that—that that is interesting, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I, n- I never sort of think, oh, you know, there are sometimes there's a riff or something, and I think, "Oh, that's a bit Immolation," but there's never a band that I think, "Oh, they're just ripping off Immolation" in the same way that bands rip off Incantation left, right, and center. Like it's interesting. It is. I think that the closest that you could actually get, and there, and I still don't think it fits entirely the 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 same in the same way that you're talking about with entombed clones or incantation clones, is actually bands like Behemoth that try to incorporate a lot of dissonance and other like tonal experimentation into like a sort of like rhythmically violent death metal, or even some bands like uh, Ulcerate, you know. Um, but even then, I don't know if those bands themselves would say, well, our primary influence in doing that was, in, it was immolation. They might say, oh yeah, we like the band and we think they're geniuses, but I don't know if they would say they're, that was their primary influence in their sound. Yeah. And again, I'm thinking back to when we were talking about what bands sound like Morbid Angel and it's interesting because Morbid Angel are obviously one of the biggest, most influential death metal bands going, but there are very few bands that actually sound like Trey's riffing style and there are very few bands that are able to uh, mimic Vigna's riffing style because you really need to sort of well it's it's you can't mimic it without sounding like you're actually ripping them off like um yeah there's just there's something about it that is is just unique and yeah as we've touched on it seems that even Vigna's kind of lost 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 his touch for it as well and is kind of just you know, engaged in this feedback loop with um, with the scene at the moment, which, yeah, does result in albums like Acts of God. Um, but yeah, uh, one sort of final final point before we get too negative about uh, the state of death metal today is um, what, what would you say is the fate? I think I know what your answer is going to be, Tyler, here, but um, I don't know about Jason. But what would you say is your favourite Immolation album, or at least the one that holds up the best? It's obvious for me. You don't even need to ask. Uh, Here and after okay. is the one I listen to the most. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No. Fair enough, Jason. Failures for Gods. That's the one that I've listened to most um, because there's something about it. No Jesus, no Beast is one of my favorite songs ever. And when the song, like you know, just breaks down and uh, turns into like this, like almost like acoustic type of texture and uh you know the the chanting and all that it, it just grants this atmosphere that is undeniably dark and i've always loved that song and that album 
I love Here and After and Dawn of Possession and, of course, you know, the Classic Five. But I feel that I've spent way more time with uh, Failures for Gods. What's your favorite album, Shelley? Well, I'm not glad you asked because it's a really tough question for me. Because um, <laughs> I I think this is one of, one of the reasons why uh, Immolation are possibly my favorite death metal band because I've never had a favorite album. And that's always like that's always an indication that they're a band worth paying attention to. So, you know, a band like Atheist, it's obvious, it's unquestionable presence. Their side, it's obvious, it's Legion, whatever. Immolation, I oscillate between Here and After, Face of Gods, Close to the World Below. And I've sort of fallen out of love with Unholy Cult, but I still think it's like it's it belongs in that tract of like, solid quality immolation albums but for me i am gonna have to go with failures for gods because i think it combines the best of both worlds in that it, it contains the really kind of murky disorientating elements of here and after with the um much more direct but no less complex kind of builds and finales that uh, Vigna was going for on, on close to well below. And it also incorporates Hernandez's drumming, which I think is exceptional where he, he does just kind of write riffs for the drums and he's almost like, yeah, a second rhythm guitarist. That's kind of not uh, like getting in Vigna's way, but complimenting him in all the, all the right kind of ways. And they still, they still retain like that old school, like creeping menace, but, with some of the more aggressive and sort of direct elements that you see on Close to the World Below and almost borderline symphonic as well. So, yeah, I think I'm going to have to go with Failures for Gods. That was a very long way to answer that question. I apologize. Oh, you're all right. As an aside, I do have a fun anecdote about the song No Jesus, No Beast. So I mentioned earlier that my first death metal concert I ever went to was to... Uh, was Nile with Immolation uh, supporting. And I believe there was some odd band opening Behold the Arctopus or something like that. Oh, uh, Jesus. They're terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I was going to see Immolation. They were the band I wanted to see. I actually didn't really care to see Nile. I, I, I had developed the opinion on them then that I have now, which is that some of their early material is all right, but that's the best of their material. It's all right. Um, and so I, I was going to see Immolation, and at the time it was what you could call the first wave of deathcore when bands like Job for a Cowboy and Carnifex and Whitechapel had all exploded onto the scene. And a lot of the people in that scene had some crossover with the brutal death metal scene. I don't know if the slam death metal scene had really picked up the steam that it got later at that point. But they had a lot of crossover with the brutal death metal scene, and a lot of them really liked the group Nile. So there were a lot of those kind of people at this show. They were there to see uh, Nile. It was, I think, in... I can't rem remember where it was that I saw them at. But we we go to this show, and I can see them there. You know, uh, there's a lot of you know, tribalism in the metal scene that's uh, divided by things like dress. You know, there are a lot of them are there in cargo shorts and tank tops and beanies and whatnot. And uh, when Immolation goes on to play, they they play, a, you know, some they have some songs from the album that was just getting ready to come out, Majesty and Decay, but they play the song No Jesus, No Beast. And um, 
where I'm I'm jamming up there and they get to the chant portion in the middle, you know, can you hear us? Death to Jesus. And it's just really powerful moment. Everybody who uh, in the audience who sur- surged up to the stage all looked more like old school metalheads, you know, denim jackets, long hair or whatnot. I was one of them up there. We're all chanting it with them, with the band. And I look behind me and I see this crowd of like kids with seen hair and kids with like beanies and cargo shorts, you know, that Nile tank tops and stuff standing, looking at us like they're very disturbed. <laughs> um, I, I don't think that they were accustomed to like the really vitriolic, uh, like anti-Christian streak and old school death metal at that time. I think, think that they mostly thought that death metal was about anger and maybe sometimes about gory stuff. So I think seeing it presented to them in a band like Immolation, which at that point I don't think a lot of them were that familiar with, was a, a little bit of a frightening experience for them. <laughs> well, I was going to say, uh, I know we want to wrap up soon, but we haven't actually discussed them live. And as much as we talk about them being really nice guys and really kind of mild battered and stuff, but when you see them live, Ross Dolan does really go for it. Like, he is a quality death metal vocalist, and yeah, when you when you get to the uh, the slow section of No Jesus No Beast, um, yeah, I, I've been at gigs where they played that, and it has been like a pleasure to behold. But they do put on a show. Uh, obviously, it goes without saying that they um, they are quality musicians, so they always like deliver the tracks in like really right competent way. But Vigner is a showman. He um, again, I compared him to Trey in the last episode in that he does kind of really make a show of playing the guitar and sort of get into a character. Dolan, he does look fucking furious on stage as well. Um, and they sort of really deliver the songs in the most powerful kind of theatrical way they can for like a, you know, a blue collar death metal band. So I could see how if you had never seen a, a proper death metal band before, that would be um, a, little, <laughs> a little bit of an experience. But yeah. Yeah, it was pretty funny. I think that it was just the fact that everybody uh, who had, who would, who was there to see Immolation, who was all uh, you know, uh, cr- uh, like uh, clustered together up front, we're all just repeatedly like, you know, yelling with glee, like, can you hear us? Death to Jesus. I don't think any of them had any favorable attitudes towards Christianity, but just like that level of violence towards it, you know, not communicated in a way that a lot of those people are used to, where it's complaining about how it's how Christianity is oppressive or abusive, but just, you know, just straight up saying, yeah, I want to kill Jesus. I think that's well, get to like, the point. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, no, it was, I love it. All right, cool. Uh, so uh, a quick little anecdote. I, I have met a couple of guys from Immolation, but I have never seen them live. I've seen videos and stage performances always look amazing, especially with the way that uh, Vigna plays. Um, I did uh, meet Bill Taylor who was the second guitarist at Emulation. He was in my car. I drove him around a little bit while I was playing the festival. And uh, I actually played Shostakovich for him. He likes Shostakovich. So uh, there's that. Um, I also met uh, Ross Dolan one time up in New York. He was at a festival that I played. He wasn't playing it, but he was just there and, you know, just making his presence known, which was uh, actually, like, thinking about it, it was the Day of Death Festival that I played, like the second iteration of it. The first one was in the early 90s. And uh, I think Emulation has a uh, split from that or something like according to Day of Death. Um, so, yeah, it, 
But other than that, have never seen them live. Um, seen videos, and they look really competent. And uh, Vigna especially looks very uh, like a, a virtuosic on many different levels on guitar. So um, I have nothing bad to say about their musicianship whatsoever. I mean, my one criticism of their live shows is they always they always play too much off whatever the latest album is. And I understand when you're a touring band, you do have to obviously play the newer numbers and you have to meet a quota or whatever. But every time I've seen them, sort of half the set is made up of of the new stuff. By the new stuff, I mean whatever the latest album is, not just newer songs. And you'll get one off Dawn of Possession, maybe one off Here and After, and you'll get the hits off Failures for Gods. I've, yeah. But that being said, I'd I'd still... I'd still go and see him. I'd still go out of my way to go and see him um, just to hear, just to hear that. So I was down in London in September, um, the first London death fest and probably the last animation played there. And it was mostly acts of God, but yeah, they played um, into everlasting fire, which made the trip worth it in my book because uh, yeah, absolutely impeccable band uh, live. So can't go wrong. Cool. Okay. Okay. Well, um, I think that pretty much, covers the immolation phenomenon i think we've pretty much covered all the main points in terms of what made them such a special band what made them such a almost forgotten band and why they slowly declined over the years um without sort of losing their sense of self in the same way as some like utterly sellout albums do but why the decline is slightly harder to define in a way that you can't really say of a morbid angel but um yeah who knows we we will probably do another spotlight episode i think we've had a couple of um good suggestions been thrown out tonight i think um jason will be gagging to do a suffocation episode in the near future um which you can look forward to guilty frost um, and who knows maybe guilty frost is next. <laughs> oh, oh no suffocation? Uh, i thought we were doing gojira is next jason oh never mind yeah yeah gojira yeah, 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 for sure <laughs> Oh, well, you had your episode. Yeah, I'll have my episode. My episode will be Celtic. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I I would love to talk about Celtic Frost. They are a much bigger formative influence on me than even Immolation is, to be honest. Well, there you go. You heard it here first, folks. Celtic Frost next. Yes, so sir. yeah, thanks very much. Go on. So, sorry, Jason. What was that? I was just agreeing with you. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, cool. Well, yeah, thanks very much for joining, Tyler. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. And Jason, um, thanks for joining your own podcast. Um... It's always a pleasure. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for allowing me to join my own podcast, Shelley. <laughs> well, sure thank no, honestly, thank you for allowing me to host today because, as I said, I fucking love Immolation and it's been an absolute pleasure to... Uh, talk about them for an hour and a half and yeah i look forward to uh chatting about celtic frost in uh in the very near future so yeah thank you very much yes sir
Let's go.